For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, someone was targeting men in New York City gay bars, killing and dismembering them. Why did it take police so long to find the culprit? We'll discuss the HBO original series, Last Call. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Mr. Deadarm, Kevin Flynn. Hi, Kevin. Why are you calling me that? Because you literally can't move your left arm right now. So oh, I no, have... What happened? Well, I've had some pain, like, in my shoulder. That's like, when I move my arm a certain way, it hurts. And so I went to the ortho, and they figured I've got, you know, something going on with my rotator cuff. So, so we can give you a shot that will probably help and put it in your... Okay, so they, you know, they put the big needle in between, like, the, in the joint between the bone and the whatever, and so, yeah, you'll start feeling good. In the meantime, my whole arm (laughs) hurts from the shoulder right down. You can't move it. I can't move it at all. When I move it, even just... (laughs) You had to take off his watch because it was too heavy. I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring my arm up to the camera and I'm picking it up with my other hand. And this, just doing this hurts so much. By the way, if this were me, this happened to Kevin at some point would accidentally be like, nice job. Boom. Like every single time something on me is hurt, he accidentally like. Why like, does no one believe men's pain? Enthusiastically punches me in that area. No one believes men's pain. I messed up my rotator cuff and I literally. I went in to the physical therapist. Uh-huh. I did six things and it was the lamest, like, can you lift this like 10 pound weight and do this and uh-huh. do that? And I was like, what should I be doing in between? They're like, oh, you don't have to do anything. And I did these six times. I didn't break a sweat any of the times. And then it was fine. It's never hurt me again. But how did that impact your toenail, Toby? <laughs> it didn't impact my toenail. There's no physical therapy for toenails. Uh, also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of The Final Curtain, Laura Bricker. Hey, Laura. Hey, Rebecca. And we have Australian listeners coming to Exeter to buy The Final Curtain, and that is just freaking amazing. So Wow. Very exciting. Yeah. I have to give a shout out to our listener, Shannon Sinclair, who is now coming back to Exeter for a second time on her New England U.S. journey just to come to Exeter back to Water Street Bookstore and have a cup of coffee. So thank you so much, Shannon, for coming to visit. That is quite the expensive cup of coffee. Didn't she swing by the bookstore and you weren't there? She did. And um, Steph at the bookstore was like, yeah, I told her if you just hang out for a little, she was tempted to say if you hang out for a little bit, she might just drop in because her office is next door, but I didn't. So then I felt a little guilty. I was like, I need to hook up because Australia to Exeter is pretty cool. You wouldn't want to come all that way and then miss it. Miss Laura Bricker. You got to see Dan with the good hair, who Mm -hmm. recently was Dan with the wet hair because he was a really good sport and went in the dunk tank at our little like police department carnival thing. But he's since rebounded. Wow. Yeah. And (laughs) finally, (laughs) Toby Ball. I literally did a costume change just now. Our captain of all things cynical, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of Strange Arrivals, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hi, Toby. 
Hello, Rebecca. Toby, can you move your arm? All right. I can move him up and down, sideways, the whole bit. <laughs> oh, both of them, too. Toby, when you're injured, does someone in your house like enthusiastically punch you in your injury? The Come way on! <laughs> only, only if I admit to being injured. That has happened like two or three times and always by accident. It happens every time. Not every time, no, no, no. Including the time I broke my leg and I came home from the emergency room and this is the first time I'd ever used crutches and Kevin's like, here, let me help you into the house. And they had not yet put a cast on my leg yet because they're like, you have to go to the orthopedist like in two days. And they just wrapped it with some gauze. And I'm literally walking to the house in stupid crutches and a broken leg. And Kevin slammed the front fucking door on my broken goddamn leg. <laughs> <laughs> and he still thinks it's funny. It's a comedy yeah. of errors. I literally, literally felt tears fly out of my face at a 90 degree angle, like a cartoon. Anyway, Kevin, this is obviously Monday's brand new episode of Crime Writers On. Probably our last. <laughs> what is happening on our next program? Well, on Thursday, we've got another CWO classic. We're going to be going back to our review of Catch and Kill. Catch and Kill. Then on Monday, we're going to be talking about the new podcast from Texas Monthly. It's called Stevenville. Stevenville. All right. We have a lot coming up. Isn't Catch and Kill like the most meta thing that ever happened, right? It's yeah. It was like a podcast about a book that already had been made into like a TV thing or something like that. I think it was a TV show, which was, it was, it was a, a TV series that was made from the podcast. It was the podcast about the Ronan Farrow book. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. I loved everything about it. All right. Yeah, Ron Farrow squeezed every drop out of that lemon. Yes. Good for him. And then it became the HBO, then it became the series, too, yeah. on HBO. Yeah. 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 Ronan. Next, it's a musical on Broadway. <laughs> I hope not. I would go to see that. Little Ronan sh shutting his curtains, like, waiting away from Black Cube, like, chasing him down the street. Catch and kill. <laughs> catch and kill. <laughs> All right. Well, All you ever do is catch and kill. Have we wasted enough time? Should we just get to what we're going to talk about? I, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's, let's get into it, Rebecca. All right, let's lead off. Let's change the tone, shall we? A serial murderer was on the loose. Something made him hate gay people. That fear, it's in all of us, of being hurt because we're queer. In 1992, authorities were slow to make connections between separate murders. A pair of affluent, closeted men disappeared after leaving New York City gay bars. Their dismembered bodies later discovered in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Our victim was cut into seven pieces and were packaged in several different trash bags. As more men were killed, gay activists tried to sound the alarm that someone was stalking club goers. But New York police were indifferent to the crimes and hostile to the queer community. The culprit known as the last call killer escaped detection for a decade until new technology gave the detectives the clues to his identity. I can't put it into words. The suspect was here in Maine and his cards in the system from 1973. The HBO original series, Last Call, when a serial killer stalked queer New York, recounts the crime spree that shook the community. Based on the Edgar-winning book by Elon Green, the series also dives into the lives of the victims, the challenges for investigators, and the cultural issues of the day. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Last Call, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs-up or thumbs-down reviews. 
And one note, we are actually friends with Elon Green, and he's a friend of the program, but that has not influenced our review either way. Right? 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 Well, we'll find out, won't we? (laughs) Right, right, because I was texting him as I was watching it, and I I was giving him some things that I thought were interesting, and I was like, what did you think about that? (laughs) Okay. It's too late to fix that. (laughs) Okay. Well, one note that you all made, and I'd love for you all to weigh in on this, and I'll start with you, Toby, is that this is a particularly victim-centric look at this crime. Is it not? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it, it follows the book in a lot of ways in that, you know, the, the killer, like, you don't even really know who he is until the, the third episode or maybe the very end of the second. So what you're really doing is following, like, there, there's some stuff about the investigation, but there's a lot about the lives that these men lived. You know, their all their lives ended in late 80s, early 90s. Uh, but what it was like to be gay uh, in New York and these, these other places where they were from. And then also... You know, what was going on in in the gay community, particularly in New York, and I, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but sort of the sort of virulent homophobia that was both in the public and then also uh, within the police department. So, I, I mean, I think that that's the real strength, right, is these sort of biographies of these men and, and, and their lives. And I think there's like an interesting part where they're talking to a woman who is a um, uh, sort of anti-violence against LGBTQ people organizer. And she's asked about the name of, they, they say, and that was, you know, so-and-so, right? And she says, you know, I don't even remember it because that's not important. What's important are the are the victims. And I, that, that sort of seems to me like almost like the thesis statement for this whole show is that what was important was the the victims' lives and, and how they lived and things like that. And that sort of their commonality is that they were murdered by this one guy, but that's not sort of what defines them. Hmm. I also like that you call it uh, victim centric because that's how I felt. I thought the story itself was very well told and I like how they took time with each victim, but also sort of the manner in which they did it. It felt like it was very affectionate testimonials, but not saccharine. You know, it's not the lit up the room or whatever. I think there were complexities to their lives and to the way that these people, their relationships with the people who were speaking and they let that be there. But they also sort of like, you know, paced in such a way that it, it, uh, it really breathed, you know? So it really uh, took that element on in a very sober way. And I think that's, you know, it, it helped form the tone of the entire series. I think it was interesting, Laura, because um, this is a time where people were closeted, right? And so right. they're sourcing here, I mean, including the first victim who was not out and, you know, he was married and had kids. And it was interesting to get, you know, the sourcing of people who were close to these victims um, who could talk now in retrospect about their relationships with them. And that's not easy right. to do because they're sort of everywhere and all over the place and they're revisiting this time and place and, you know, talking about people that they didn't necessarily even know were gay at the time. In some cases they did, obviously, and in some cases they didn't. In some cases they knew they were having relationships with somebody who was closeted. So that's it's a complex situation, but it was it was just extremely sensitively done, I thought. Yeah, it really was. And I think when you were talking about this being victim centric, you know, before we get into how sensitively it was done, I think what I really appreciated about that was that at the time that this happened, there wasn't a culture where it was conducive to sharing the lives of these men who were victims in this case. 
So this really gave their family and friends an opportunity, as it did in the book, to share what they loved about them and what they remembered about them and do it in a way that was very thorough and compassionate and loving. And, you know, I think that that couple that you were talking about, Rebecca, that was like one of my favorite parts because he's like, they were friends and whatever. And the one guy was like, had never been with a man. He's like, and then we had a little hanky panky. It was quite a romance because we were so close and we were so intimate. We fit together and we were safe together. It's trust. We trusted each other. Obviously, this relationship could not see the light of day or we would both be in serious trouble. But I think even after that, you hear about how they have this connection, they have this relationship, but it's still secret for so long. And so when these crimes are happening, you also have the flip side, which are the friends and and family of these people can mourn their death, but the people that are their romantic partners, maybe not out themselves, aren't really able to fully come out and mourn and grieve these people that have been so brutally murdered. Do you know what I mean? Laura, I can't believe you didn't mention the nose hair. I'm that one guy just was out of control. <laughs> That's not important, Kevin. Well, I, I, I mean, those are things that do distract me, Kevin. You know how my brain works. Yes. I'll be like, oh, I can't look at that nose hair. I can't look at that nose hair mode. No. Um, well, it's interesting because there are details in this case that have distracted me too. One of them, and I actually talked to Elon about this when um, I interviewed him about this book in Exeter, is the hot dog vendor um, mm-hmm. who discovered the body in the dumpster the day that um, you know he went to open the hot dog truck. And he wanted the police to, like, get the investigation out of the way so he could just open his hot dog truck. And I'm yeah. like, dude, you just found a head yeah. and a body. It's the most New York like, oh, thing Also, your ever. hot dog truck is on wheels. Yes. But you it, know, you- it's like so, and it's like, you really think people are going to be so excited to like, eat hot dogs, like, 10 feet away from where you Where the body just, parts were found? He was so, in the book, in the book, there's this whole scene where he's just so annoyed at this crime scene being so close to his truck. And I'm like, it's just the most New York thing ever to just be so just like not compassionate about this situation. It's it's also like a criminal thing. It's like when you think about like people that are like police and medical examiners and you would like see somebody that's like eating while they're doing an autopsy and you're like, <laughs> Yeah, but that's he, he wasn't that he was a guy selling the hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's got a job to do. I know. Um, I thought it was interesting to see these people having read the book. And so it's a lot, obviously it's a lot of the same people that are in the book or in the show. And it was, it was kind of interesting to see the, the cops are exactly who you imagine they were. Yes. When you read the book. Well, let's talk about the, I want to talk about the cops, not the New York city cops, the, the other cops, you know, the Jersey and Pennsylvania cops, because they are in the spectrum of the investigation, the quote, better ones, right? I mean, they actually did some investigating and the New York City cops did basically none, yet they're not perfect investigators and perfect, quote, characters in this in any way, right, Toby? Yeah, well, there's that one who said, like, he got off, I don't know if he, like, took a bus into Port Authority or something. He says he got off and he saw all this stuff going on. I was like, I'm never going back there. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, one of the things that kind of runs through this is, like, at best, they're uncomfortable investigating crimes in sort of the, the gay community. 
And at worst, their their homophobia is like a real impediment mm-hmm. to doing that. And that and it's kind of there's some subtle things that are in there. There's also some not subtle things. <laughs> And there's also some not subtle things like there, there's like this crazy uh, interview they have where at the end they're like, oh, you got any questions? He's like, why are you guys emphasizing the gay thing? At that time, we didn't know it was a, a gay bar. I don't know anything about where all the gay bars in New York are. I don't know about anything about the community because it really is irrelevant. I mean, we don't all we do. All we know is we got a body. And we gotta find out who would do it, but it's not really relevant to anything. And then another guy says that he was having their cops were at a disadvantage because the gay community was, quote unquote, not their home turf. Uh, you see some notes where um, I'm not gonna use the the term, but it's blank bar describing uh, these these gay bars that that they're going to uh, they have to go to to you know try and gather evidence and stuff. So. It's maddening, right? I mean, it, it really is, you know, if, if you're trying to look for ways to cut the cops slack, they don't really give you much to work right. with because it's just pure sort of bigotry and they can either kind of fight it a little bit or not at all, but it definitely affects the investigation. Yeah, I'm not sure, Toby, what I make of the older cops either. I mean, we need to have a separate discussion about the NYPD and those guys, but these guys, I mean, they don't strike me as metropolitan cops, so their professional exposure to the gay community was probably limited. Personally, you know, I'm assuming very limited. Uh, But they also had that one guy who was talking about it, and he felt like if he said the wrong thing in the wrong way about a gay person, that he would be called a bigot. So I think he's also kind of like he understands that there's something like he doesn't know how to navigate it. So it's very inelegant. But I think that they at least he kind of recognizes that his experiences are of a different time. Whereas the other guys, well, what's the gay thing all about? I mean, it's one thing when they're saying like, oh, it didn't matter that they were gay. We're going in. We're going to do the investigation. And you're right. Their sexual identity shouldn't be a consideration in whether you do the investigation, but if you don't see their sexual orientation, then you're missing a part of who they are, which is also a part of who the criminal is and why they're victims and everything like that. So it's one thing to, you know, say, oh no, I'm, I'm a really great guy because I don't see any of that. You know, that's not what we're hoping for. We're glad that you're, you know, agnostic about how much effort you're going to put into the crime. But by not acknowledging and not trying to see that, that that's what their experience is, not only are you doing them personally uh, a disservice, you're doing your investigation a disservice. Well, it's like being a member of any community and saying you're, quote, colorblind or saying or saying, you know, I don't care if you're. Black, white, green, red, or purple. And you're like, nobody is green, red, or purple. You're actually just like being really racist when you say that kind of shit. Yeah, just dismissing it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, not cool, not cool. The reality is if that's the commonality among the victims, like you have to take that into account, right? I mean, you're not being like super progressive by saying, I don't even know. That's like a clue. Like that's that's part of what ties people together and, and you can't ignore it. So- yeah, I mean, there are, people, there are people who are libertarian and there are people who are straight up capitalists, like capitalists who want you to spend money on Patreon. Oh, yes, yeah, just like those. Because those, 
That's what they all have in I, common. All the people on our Patreon. Well, no. I'm talking about that. No, I'm a capitalist. capitalist. Yes. I'm a capitalist. Yes. I believe in, I don't know, the this free market. It's a profit here. No. <laughs> we got to eat. We got to eat, which is why we're like, hey, we're going to put this discussion aside and talk about our business section. Yes. You can go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media and join our Patreon. And again, full disclosure, executive producer from this uh, this documentary, Elon Green, is a patron. Mm. Uh, and so. Or he was. He was. <laughs> he was. <laughs> and I, by the way, I'll just say that when I picked this, I assumed this was on his book, but I didn't 100% you know. You know why you should have and assumed I, that? Because when we met name. him, he said there was a documentary being made about his book and he was working on it. No, I, I wasn't. I actually haven't met him. Everybody else said I had baseball. Oh, you weren't yeah, there. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way thing go, things go. What will you get if you join us on Patreon? Well, this week we have the new Crime Writers on the After Show. We have, Rebecca and I have uh, two great stories from our vacation. One is disgusting and the other is a miraculous. miracle. It's miraculous. Uh, yeah, with the disgusting one is also, it's murder adjacent. Well, according to you, yes. It is. All it's right. serial killer adjacent. Serial killer adjacent. Yes. Uh, we also have Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast. On the last Deep Dive, Toby talked about The Stranger Beside Me, which is the uh, Anne Rule's um, Ted Bundy book. And your guests all kind of said, ah, this was kind of showing its age, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. It's, it, it's super long and... Um, like a lot of sort of the stereotypes, the wrong stereotypes we have about serial killers. I don't know if you can trace it right back to this book, but she certainly like pushes the serial killers are geniuses and they're super charming and good looking and stuff. That kind of is in this book. Um, there's some other stuff about like bite mark evidence and stuff like that. So anyway, it kind of moves along. It's really, really long. And it has like an insane number of... Uh, of epilogues because they kept updating yeah. the, you know, she the, just the editions. It. Yeah. Yeah. And so you get these long things. There's just one after another after another, and you just feel like it's never going to end. But that being said, I mean, the rest of the book, I mean, it, it goes down pretty easily. The story's interesting, uh, but it definitely is a product of its time. You're basically describing uh, the better flavor of NyQuil right now. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's the red NyQuil. Like, it's not as bad as it could be. It goes down pretty easy, but it's a product of its time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it... I, I, there's, a re- there's a reason why it's like a like zillion seller and a classic <laughs> is that the the main part of the book kind of moves along and you can kind of forgive it for it's uh it's being written when it was uh then you just get to these endless like afterwards and you just like it's just makes it not worth it now you anyway now if you're a deep diver uh deep dive member uh on patreon you get to watch toby record his next podcast live on crowdcast you can even jump in the chats and contribute and the book that they're doing this time is called in the mouth of the wolf mm. and tell yes. us about your very sexy panel yeah this is gonna be awesome actually the uh the book is about a sort of pioneering sort of crusading mexican journalist who was murdered about 10 years ago 
and it's just a lot about Mexican journalism and and the dangers that they they practice under and the corruption in Mexico and stuff. And uh, I've got a great journalist uh, panel. Uh, I've got Simone Paget, who uh, writes a sex and relationship column for the Toronto Globe and Mail. Uh, we have Meg Heckman, who Ooh. is a journalism, teaches journalism at Northeastern University so in Boston. And uh, then we have Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Maggie Freeling. Amazing. Yeah, that's so one good looking panel, also, Toby. Also a journalism instructor. Yeah. Also, yeah, I'm really excited to hear what they have to say about this because they've got 100% uh, the perspectives to talk about this story. And the story itself is just, it, it's crazy. And I have an update because I was supposed to have a Leave it to Bricker this week after my great cattle roundup. However, the cattle roundup has been continued mm. for two weeks because they were getting a load of hay, which has only given me more time to source my perfect cattle roundup outfit. So stay tuned. You can tell that Laura is working in the criminal legal system again because she says her cattle roundup has been continued and not postponed. <laughs> <laughs> it has continued it's a to be next. Yes, it's been it filed. It's been a continuance yes. filed in the cattle roundup. But don't worry. Um, and I was told my enthusiasm might be construed as aggression, but I don't care. I'm so enthusiastic. I'm, I'm ready for the cattle roundup. <laughs> wow. Get along, little doggy. Okay. We have... I have a theme song. Yes. <laughs> That's what the men on the dating app say. Your enthusiasm is construed <laughs> as aggression. It's, it's a little aggressive. <laughs> Get used to it. This is Laura Bricker, people. <laughs> also, if you tune in to These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, we've got a great double episode that we're talking about, this two-parter from season 17 of SVU. This is the one where you have the uh, the serial killer who's in jail, and he helps him point to the killer of a bunch of crimes who is also the, the serial killer examiner. who's the medical examiner. Have a listen. Dr. Carl Rudnick, deputy chief, medical examiner in the borough of Manhattan. He's a serial killer. Wait, Carl became an ME? Oh no, that, oh, that really is, that is, that is perfect. He never liked people. It's based on so many things. My goodness, there's like, there's Long Island serial killer, there's Robert Durst, there's all sorts of like funky stuff. It was a lot of fun to talk about. There's and a our sex guest, trailer. I sex trailer. <laughs> our guest was Lauren Vandermeer from uh, the Drinks With Death podcast. It was a really fun tape. All right, so Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Jill Crosby, and Allison Wormers. Jill. Bless you. Bless you. Allison, bless you. Thanks for joining our Patreon. Thanks to everybody who's over there. Thanks to everybody who isn't and just listens to the business section anyway. We love all of you, but really consider joining our Patreon. It's super fun back there. Kevin, is us in the business section? The Sends. The business section. I'm going to go ahead and fade that music out right now. So, Laura, speaking of victims, um, one of the victims that you made a special note about was Anthony Marrero. Right. Yeah. Because he definitely gets, a, I think, a nice bit of time in the documentary and should. Yeah. And I think what I thought was really interesting about his story is that, you know, we have these other men, privileged, white, closeted gay men. And then we have Anthony Moreau, who's a Puerto Rican sex worker. And we see a different side to the gay community in New York through his story. We have his brother who is still struggling with this part of his life. We have a friend who talks about him. We have the nephew who's also coming out in his own way and relating to this story. And I think for me, 
this is somebody that to me was marginalized twice, you know, because of their work as a sex worker, because of their background and because of their sexual orientation. So to have that person included in this, to me, was almost more heartbreaking than some of the other stories just because of who he was and how he died, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And Toby, like another thing that we should point out that is in in addition to, you know, looking at you know, the different victims here, you sort of pointed out, too, that there are also multiple villains in the documentary, you know, aside from um, the, you know, the the killer himself. Right. Well, there's a killer. uh, There's homophobia as as a thing, both sort of within the public and within the the police departments, which I think I think they do a really good job with um, sort of placing what happened in in time and sort of what the attitudes were at the time um and then you have anita fucking bryant <laughs> who, i mean what the hell it's so weird um, But don't you feel like you can draw a through line from anita bryant's rhetoric to the rhetoric today the um anti-gay rhetoric and bills being passed and you know very trying very to do it i mean it's in the documentary, it's, yeah. it's the same i mean it's the same exactly yeah. the same talking points and it, it's it's anita bryant all over again yeah, it's Anita Bryan all over again. Now they're going after kids too. Yep. I, I that that didn't seem to be a big thing there. Uh, but going after trans children, I mean, it's it's back, right? It's back, and it's just it's virulent again. And some of the way things are being framed is slightly different, but it's no less vicious. With you know accusations of being groomers and people protesting drag story times, it's it's, it's really. It's not good, and it comes from a certain political viewpoint. It, it, it needs to be called out more than it is. I think the media does a terrible job of, like, kind of putting it forward. Like, well, you know, here's what one side says, and and this other side says. It's like, no, it's like it's just pure fucking unadulterated bigotry. Right. It's not culture it's wars. It's going after. It's not culture wars. It's it's not it's, culture it's wars. Discrimination it's, and bigotry. And it's it's unbelievable that it's become a political talking point that is just widely accepted by the masses. And, and, and in many cases, going after like the most vulnerable, you know, I, trans kids. I, it's that's about as vulnerable a population as you as you can describe, and they're being vilified. So anyway, off my soapbox, but it's it's not hard to draw conclusions today based on what you see here. I, I really appreciated the, the point that they made about even like the name of the killer and they call him the last call killer, which I thought was, oh, yeah, it's very creative and whatever. But it was born out of this dismissal and actually this antipathy towards the gay community by some columnist. That it was Post, more, yeah. Like we're calling him. I'm calling him the, this guy. I'm, you know, the last call killer because trying to sort of draw a line to like, oh, no, this is the, everybody at the end of the night and they're all promiscuous and this is what you get going home with the, you know, the last wallflower or whatever. Uh, and it's what like, you oh. get for staying out late at bars and drinking and being yeah. gay. <laughs> yeah. And Wallace Reiner, I can certainly appreciate a very clever moniker as much as the next guy. I was like, oh, OK, I understand. I understand why not everybody embraces this as the way to refer to the killer. 
Right. Well, no, I don't think I don't think serial killers should ever have monikers. I always think it's gross when serial. I mean, unless it's like related to a place, because like mm-hmm. that's where it happens. The Long right? Island serial killer. Yeah, killer. you know the Gilgo. Yeah. It's like it's like that's a place. That's where it happened. Cool. But like, if that's ever something that tries to be a brand, gross. Just don't do it. If you're out there, you're ever tempted to like name a killer or something for fun, don't do it. It's gross. But Laura, Laura, you and I are never going to apologize for this. The story about the guy who was breaking into women's. Uh, apartments and then cutting their clothes off with scissors oh, and how they called him Jack, Jack the, the Snipper. Oh, Jack the Snipper. Oh, yeah. Jeffrey Gelinas in Durham. Mm-hmm. I remember that case very well. He and, and then every time he kept getting out, he kept doing it again. Yeah. All right. Should we get back on topic? <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, why? oh, wait. Can we talk about why the I also watch the Golden Girls and I'm not a closeted gay man. <laughs> we don't have to be old and closeted gay to watch the Golden Girls. Can we talk about that? Well, it doesn't hurt. Well, I love how they like go into that guy. So when we get Richard Rogers, who's this nurse that ends up being the last call killer, you know, you have the police like searching his apartment and you see these videotapes of him like, there's all these Golden Girls episodes and we're like, what's this show for old people? Like they, he must be gay. And I'm like, seriously, like I want to live like my friends and I have already decided that we are going to be living in a golden girl's house someday. So, mm. and we're not gay. We just want to live in a golden girl's house. So you can come visit. Were the golden girls gay? No, but they are promiscuous. No, but they are. They are sort of like they're held up by the gay community. They're sort of like gay icons, even though they're not gay. In the it's same like way Liza that like Minnelli. Dolly Parton is, in the same yeah. way that like Barbara Streisand is, and like the Golden Girls are sort of like part of the iconography. Or like Liberace. Yeah. Well, Liber- Liberace was gay. I'm, jo- I'm joking. <laughs> That was very funny. Very Remember, funny I just, we, last week we Jones. had um, one of our rewind was a missing Richard Simmons. Yeah. The one time we talked with Dan Taberski on the, these are the stories. Somehow it came up that he like watched all, all of the Golden Girls. Yeah. Like he's a super Golden Girls fan. It's an fan. incredible show. It totally yeah. holds up, by the way. A hundred percent holds up. Except for the fact when you find out they were all like 55 years old. Oh, like, like, oh my, my God. Like Estelle Getty was like my age. She was in that freaking wig. It was ridiculous. Anyway, I hate being the same age as all these old people. <laughs> was that the one that Delta Burke was on? No, that was Designing Women, which also, by the way, kind of holds up. <laughs> I watch the Golden Girls a lot at night. It helps me fall asleep. It's very soothing. Okay. Um, what other notes do we have here that we have to talk about? All right. I liked the bartender lady. Oh, my God. The bartender lady was incredible. Uh, okay. Are you filming us now? Are you going to let me see what I look like? Oh, I can see it now, but I, God, I look huge. No, you don't. No. You look amazing. You look amazing. <laughs> this is a really long time ago. A really long time ago. And her recall of like specific nights, specific songs that were sung, uh, you know, Michael's place at the bar, you know, it's really unbelievable. And her self-consciousness looking at the camera at herself when she looks exactly the freaking same as she did 20 <laughs> years ago. It was pretty unbelievable to me. And uh, Kevin, there were some details in the film that you enjoyed as well. Yeah, the great footnote about how they were going to surveil the killer, but they ended up making a quick collar because he was working at the same hospital where Rudy Giuliani's mother was. Like, oh, you wouldn't want Giuliani's mother to get ganked by the last call killer. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh, by yeah. the goose ganker? No, I'm The yeah. goose ganker, yeah. She, yeah. she was right in the uh, killer's demographic. Yeah, every, yeah it was yeah. like, yeah, that was not his profile. Yeah. Even the FBI profilers could tell you that. But, you know, I'll say, can I say one thing, though, about, like, how this wraps up? I just feel like 
this suffers from it, you know, an all true crime. And I'll say my books included that like it always just kind of loses steam when you get to the arrest and the trial, because like, you know, even though the legal case continues, the narrative is really up because the story here is about who is the killer. And then we find out. And then you've got another hour of falling action, which because in a lot of cases, what happens in trials, you're just recapping the story that you already told. So yeah. unless you've got other things there. Now, I will say that they did use this opportunity because now that we have the killer to talk about his backstory, which includes two other very and that's the interesting violent bits. crimes. That, yeah. those, so, so to me, yeah, his, that his, brings it in. Yeah, his, his 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 last trial was not nearly as interesting as the other other crimes that he committed and the other times he was you know in legal peril. Which it's amazing that he was even allowed to be out. Yeah. to commit these murders, like the failure to catch him earlier, to me is the most interesting part of of this story. And I, in, in I was terms surprised, and I guess I shouldn't be surprised that the gay panic defense is still applicable in more than half the states. It's legal here, or yeah, either. here. Yeah. I know it's disgusting. I just the the, the other person like, I was kind of struck by was his friend, that woman who talked about him a little bit, and and that just seemed a little heartbreaking. Like she doesn't fight the conclusion that's drawn, right? She's just like, yeah, you know, he did it and he's got to, you know, face the consequences for what he did. Although she doesn't seem like she ever saw that side of him, right? She's just kind of taking that as, you know, the evidence is there. He clearly did it, but it's not the person I saw. I, I, th I thought she was kind of an interesting voice that you don't necessarily see. Like usually people are either digging their heels in and, and trying to proclaim somebody's innocent or sort of totally thrown under the bus. And, and she's, you can kind of see, you know, I mean, she's, she's heartbroken basically that, that this person who she, she loved turns out to be a, a killer. It's, it surprises me, honestly, that he's not better known in many ways. And I think it's because of who the victims are, because he is a very unusual person in that he was so, he was really two people, which many killers are not. Like Rex Hoyer, men we're seeing, was not really two people, monster by day, monster by night. This guy was very competent by day, really well liked, but really respected by day. And then was, it's just, it's, it's, it's really not surprising and surprising that this case isn't better known. All right, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know should they check out the HBO original, Last Call, Laura Bricker? What do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Last Call? So I'm going to give this a thumbs up. This is definitely, you know, a straightforward true crime documentary in many ways. But what I like about it that sort of sets it apart for me is the emphasis on the victims in this case as told through their family and friends. The victims in this case, gay men in New York City at a time period when there was extreme homophobia, when even the police were saying, like, what the emphasis on all the gay part? And told in a very compassionate, comprehensive, and sensitive way. It was four episodes. I think that was just enough time to tell this story. Only the last episode is devoted to the killer in this case. And, and that was interesting as well. But, I, you know, I think this is a really interesting story, and it's interesting to see how something that was originally reported in nonfiction narrative book format is converted into you know, television documentary format. But I, I thought it was I thought it was really interesting and I I really liked it. Toby Ball. Yeah, I mean I think I will probably all say something along these same lines is that, you know, people talk a lot about 
sort of victim-centered shows, true crime shows or whatever. This one, I think, does it right. There's not a whole lot of, you know, he lit up the room whenever he walked in kind of stuff. It's like these these very, you know, sort of nuanced portraits of of the victims who are gay men living in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And, and I think it's just, it, it's poignant, but not in a way that is sort of, saccharine or, or, or nostalgic or, or any of that kind of thing. And I think the history part they have about uh, the gay community during that time is also extremely interesting. I, I was just, I was, I was just fascinated by the community organizing that goes around when the community realizes that they can't rely on the police or sort of the, the, the typical sort of municipal forces for protection that they organize their community to protect each other. So that I, I thought that was very interesting. It's a high quality show. I strongly recommend it. I also think if you are sort of intrigued by it and you want to l- learn more, you know, Elon's book, which is also called um, Last Call, is, is really good. I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot of overlap, but it's a book. So he goes into more detail about some of the stuff and ha- has some slightly different insights. So yeah, big, big thumbs up. Kevin Flynn, thumbs up or thumbs down for Last Call. I'm a thumbs up. I like the way that this was put together. In addition to the crimes, I appreciated the other historical and cultural context that they brought to it. Sometimes they do this in in documentaries and it feels like it's shoehorned in. But I think it was very important to do so. And they did it in a really great way. The way that educated and enlightened as well as propelled the rest of the narrative along. I think there's a lot of younger people that might be surprised at what the, you know, the conditions were like to be a gay man or woman in the late 80s or 1990s. There's been progress, but there also have been setbacks. And I think it's always important to kind of like remind everybody about how far we've come and how far we still need to go. But even still, that's not really the focus of the, the series. It's a crime series. It's just informed by all this really great information. Again, I feel like it really peters out at the end when we get to the trial um, because all the good stuff has happened in the story narratively. But, you know, it's still, it still it gets across the finish line. I'm a thumbs up. Yeah, I'm a thumbs up for this, too. I like the book better. I will just throw that out there. The book is just so freaking good and it is just really hard to live up to. And I don't think the series added anything. If you've read the book, I'm not sure the series adds much, except you do get to meet some of the people that you see in the book, that they read about in the book and they are delightful to meet. I will say that. Um, The series, the one thing it does suffer from is this has to be four episodes and we have to fill them, uh, which is like phenomenon that we talk about all the time on the show. And there are some passages of it that feel a little bit repetitive and long to me. That being said, there's a lot of really, really great stuff here. I really, really enjoyed most of what I saw. And it's just such an interesting and fascinating case. And there's stuff in here that we need to learn about, that we need to know about. And it's just a deep dive into a really, really interesting part of history in New York, a part of an unknown story in true crime and something that I think everybody should watch. So yeah, thumbs up for me for Last Call. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the Crime, crime of the of Week. The week. One person was hurt when the new instructor at a Colorado driving school drove his car right through the wall. Police in Lakewood said seven people had to dive out of the way when the unidentified employee jumped the curb and plowed through the front window. They say the teacher was in their own car, not one of the instructional vehicles with the warning sign and the backup set of brakes. 
It was only their second and last day on the job. The cops cited them for a moving violation. It doesn't appear they'll lose their license, but if they do, they know which literal hole-in-the-wall driving school they can attend to get it back. Panel, we feel like maybe the driving school could have done a better job of vetting their new instructors. What foreseeable and highly ironic job-related catastrophe will this person commit next time? Laura Bricker, what do you think? I'm going to say trying to parallel park and running somebody over. (laughs) Tell me about what do you think foreseeable and highly ironic job-related catastrophe this person will get themselves into next time? I don't know. If he's going to be a swim instructor, maybe uh, try him out in the deep end. (laughs) What do you think, Kevin? He's going to be a firefighter (laughs) who burns down the house. How about a true crime podcaster who commits a murder? That happens. (laughs) That happens. Does? That happens? Uh, 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 All right, that's going to do it for us. But before we go, Laura Bricker, I have a question for you. Do we have a cat of the week this week? Our cat of the week comes from Melissa. And it is two kittens. Melissa's oldest daughter was auditioning for a musical theater troupe. While they were there waiting, these two strays came up to her youngest daughter. They were starving and looked pretty rough. The black cat had blistered paws and frizzy whiskers. We couldn't bear to leave them. I know how you feel. And after my girls got attached, they were able to convince my husband. So we took them home. We took them to a vet for an exam. They are estimated eight weeks old. Since we found them at the theater studio, my girls named them Winnie Poster based on Winnie Foster from Tuck Everlasting and Aaron nice. Burr, based on Aaron Burr from well, Hamilton. Also from history, Hamilton. I'm just saying, they named, they named their cat after a guy who shot a guy, just saying. I know, Maybe? but that's exciting. Yeah. It, for it was a Raymond podcast. Burr, Ironsides. <laughs> well, it's Aaron, Aaron Burr. Burr. Aaron Burr. Remember that commercial? Aaron Burr. Yes. That depends. Who's asking? Oh, sure. Aaron Burr. All right. No, 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 no. We don't do that here. We don't do that here. We don't recite (laughs) Hamilton on this show. That is not a thing. (laughs) Yeah. Throw away your shot, That is not a thing we do on this particular podcast. Laura Bricker, if folks want to follow you on social media and do that with you there, how can they find you online? (laughs) So if... If you want to come, because that's the only song that I can do that on Hamilton, because it for some reason it always pops up in my car as the first song on my um, what <laughs> on my my music thing. You can tweet at me at Laura your Bricker. music thing. Is that like a radio or what? What what is a music? Yeah, thing? no. On my when I when I go onto my Apple CarPlay and I have my music. For some reason, that song always pops up. So literally, I hear it in my yeah, head. Mine's Dancing sleeping. Queen by Abba because oh, sure. Abba starts with A-B. Toby uh, Paul, yeah. <laughs> where can folks find you online? You want to hear what co- comes up first on my playlist? Um, you can find me at Toby Ball NH. What about you, Kevin? How can you be found? I'm young, scrappy, and hungry at Kevin oh, P. Flynn. God, stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Y'all know that I love Hamilton. What I don't love is people who quote Hamilton. I just don't love that. If you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. What's your name? What's oh your name? Oh, my God. You can also follow the show on Twitter. Alexander Hamilton. Alex I'm dying. Hamilton. At Crime I'm Writers on. Rebecca. Can you just, I'm cooperating. Can you just mute that? You can also follow the show nope. on Twitter at Crime Writers on, and I encourage you to join the incredible community in our official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group. We also have regular old Facebook page, by the way. Get episodes early and ad-free at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You also get the Crime Writers on After Show, Married with Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast. I'm going to do Lay Miz next time, you motherfuckers. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the wonderful Livy Burdett. 
The executive producer of this fine program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, The Closet, in our New Hampshire basement where we also rehearse our show-stopping piano bar numbers. It's the room where it happens, the room where it happens. No! On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later! Are you sure your thing's recording, though? Yes. Okay, good. I'm looking at it right now. I, okay. I stopped doing what I was doing to Great. make sure that it was all... Okay, good. Go ahead, Kevin. You can start. Right, and go. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this... Okay, can you hold up? Wait. <laughs> okay, now you can go. <laughs> that was really funny. I loved it. <clears throat> <clears throat> Partners in Crime, crime Media. media.